Deborah J., welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're back in Tennessee. It's nice to be back in Tennessee. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful state. I think you brought some warm weather with you, although you were probably coming from the cold. I'm not sure. Coming from the cold. So if I did bring the warm weather, the people in Michigan are not happy with me. That's right. They're waiting for it. That's right. When was the last time you were here at Cumberland Heights? Do you know? I think 10 years ago. No kidding. I mean, it flies, you know, it's been a long time. But you know, when I drove up, I thought, wow, I remember what a beautiful campus this is. Did you? I mean, it really just struck me because it's, it's just stunning immediately. You know, it's just like such a great place. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm sure that the facility probably looks a lot similar, right? We got some changes that I'm sure you heard about that are going to be happening over the next few years, which we're excited about, but it's a good, um, it's accessible to the city. And uh, we're a little bit out, but we're still connected. And I think it's good for us to kind of connect on this drive, the River Road Drive, as we all talk about it. So it's a good like reflection point for all of us as we're driving out here. And I think for people who come here, I think it's so important, you know, if you study emotional design, that a lot of clinical problems can just go away because people can get outside and it's beautiful. Right. And it's the air is fresh and the trees and that does so, so much for anybody, but somebody, you know, coming into treatment, that's an enormous thing. I think it takes care of a lot of things. Yeah. that. Maybe like a reprieve or a reset. Like away a reset. From- and it, I think just a kind of a spiritual experience, you know, of the world. And, you know, when things, when the drugs are out of your brain for a while, and then all of a sudden things start becoming technicolor again, you know, and you can start seeing the world clearly. And then you're in a place like this. It's really special. Yeah, it's important. Just given your experience, I was just thinking about how the world has changed so much with these little smart devices that we all carry around and how inundated we are with information. And I was thinking about the experience of a patient, you're probably right on showing up and being totally disconnected in a lot of ways, at least in the beginning, digitally, and how much of a positive, net positive that can be. Um, By way of working with families over the last 10 years since you were last year and beyond, because I know you worked at Hazelden Betty Ford for a number of years. I was at Hanley Hazelden. So it's before Betty Betty Ford and Hazelden were, that was way in their future to come together. Yeah. So this was the early 90s when Hazelden owned Hanley. They built that with the Hanley family originally. Tell us what you did for them. So I really started out, um, I started out, I was going to the the addictions counselor training and I did my internship there. But while I was going through the schooling, I actually started out right at the bottom, a CD tech. I worked in the office. I transcribed all of the notes because we didn't have computers yet. Can you imagine that? So I'm listening to everything that all the counselors are dictating about all the patients. They would record every session. They would record. And I would sit in the office and then I would type it all out, you know, and then it would be put in these paper charts and we had locked drawers where we kept them. And so it was kind of this great thing. Like when you hear about CEOs of companies and they started out in the mail room or something, it was like that. So that I, you know, and then I kind of, you know, um, started doing not like anything like group therapy, but kind of life skills groups and things like that as I went along. And then, um, and then it was just a great period of time. So when I was hired there after I did my internship, um, it was like everything opened up. 
So I was able to get every level of care, every kind of experience you could have within inpatient and outpatient and halfway house and specialized treatment, like for older adults, finally landing on my very favorite part of all, and that was doing the family program. The family program was the best job of them Why? all. Oh, well, I am the family, you know? So actually, I got in the field to work with the families. And I was told, well, you have to work with the alcoholics and addicts for five years before you get to work with the families. <laughs> they let me do it after four. But it was really smart of them because you, hmm. I, it's my belief, you don't really know this disease until you're in the trenches, in patient treatment, carrying a caseload. Um, that teaches you like n nothing else about this disease, I believe. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So you found your passion in the family program. Was this like multifamily groups? Was this individual sessions? Tell us no, about that. No, this, the, the Hazelden family program was really unique. Unfortunately, they're not doing it anymore. I think it was one of the great designs. And the way the family program worked is the families would come, but their loved ones, their beloved alcoholic, their beloved right. addict in treatment did not attend the family program with them. Other people's family members in treatment came. And it was really? absolutely magical because without all the emotional baggage, all the distorted emotions that come with loving somebody who has an addiction, um, all, none of that baggage was there. And so the bonding between these family members and other people's family members was incredible. And they could hear them and they could listen to them about the disease um, and their lived experience with it and their relationships with their family members and everything they'd been going through. And they could open up themselves, the patients, to these family members precisely because they were not their family members. Right. It was like it was like it opened up the doors and windows and everything else where they could talk so freely. And it was magical because everybody walked away changed in an immense way. I mean, the disturbed emotions, all wow. the negativity, it just melted away. The bonding was so strong. And of course, their, their beloved alcoholic and addict who's still on the units is a nervous wreck, you know, like what's going what on talking over about? there? What yeah. are they talking? But then they got that experience too with other family members. So it was one of the most beautiful experiences, you know, and uh, we didn't do any therapy. Uh, it was... Um, um, it was just a very specific design. We did support group kinds of things, but not like, not like individual therapy. And of course, their loved one wasn't there, so that wasn't happening. So um, yeah, it was a beautiful design, and it was extremely effective. And because of that, I started, uh, and it had to close down during COVID, but we're going to open it back up in my hometown of Gross Point, Michigan, um, a 12-step program that was both that's both AA and Al-Anon. And um, that has had the same effect with wives whose husbands are in treatment. And they're like, that saved me because I'm listening to other alcoholics, other addicts who are in recovery. And so an integrated group, integrated like an open, group. Yeah. is it under the banner of a certain 12-step modality so, or is it just yeah yeah a, it's a, absolutely 12 step and it follows all of that but it's bringing a and alanon together and then the um 
a lot of the alcoholics and addicts that come who've been in long-term recovery, they've never heard the other the wow. family talking. Right about what their experience is. Right. So I, I, I sort of mimicked the idea of that that original Hazelden program, which, like I say, doesn't exist anymore. That's really unique. So did you have to, was there an existing Al-Anon and AA group that you were, oh, so no, you just, we just started, started this meeting. It. And yes, it like, and then registered open. it with Al-Anon and registered separately with Al-Anon and AA. Really? Yeah. And, um, yeah, amazing. And so we're going to start it up again. You know, it was an in-person meeting. Sure. And we're going to start it up again. Uh, and and now people that started then, you know, their spouses have a few years of recovery. And they say, if it hadn't been for that, I'm talking about the families. Sure. But primarily the wives I'm talking about, some husbands. Um, I don't, they say, I, I don't think we would have come back. Our relationship would have come back as quickly. But in listening to those other alcoholics and addicts, I could have empathy. Right. That's so interesting. I, I it's, It reminds me, you know, I'm in recovery. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that, but I am. And it reminds me of the work that um, hopefully along your journey you're asked to do. Yeah. Right. Whether that's about your family of origin or a trauma experience or these things we call relationships, which you end up writing on steps over and over about generally and getting that... Um, kind of exposure to other groups and how they're affected is so unique. And I think in my experience, you're right. If you're not going to those sources to consume that information, you're not going to be taught those skills No, or you're not no. going to have that insight right. about the other's perspective, which is super valuable. Like I've been to several Al-Anon meetings and they're so valuable. They're so valuable. Yeah. And I mean, I'll be honest with you. There were some recovering alcoholics that freaked out about just some basic Al-Anon 101 things that people would be sharing, the Al-Anon people, that that just, you know, I mean- It was like I, groundbreaking for them. It was groundbreaking. And, you know, mm. I say there are a lot of- people in AA or NA or other 12, you know, addicted people that have lots and they, they, their Al-Anon issues have never been met because the programs are not the same. I mean, That's, it's the same 12 steps and much is the sure. same, but the, the core is different. You know? Yeah. The atmosphere of recovery is unique generally. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so the topics and the flavor of focus tends to be traditional. And if you're not, you're right. Al-Anon is a totally different approach. That's going to make you think about re- recovery is all about relationships, I think. Um, and Al-Anon is going to present those relationships in a way that might otherwise be inaccessible. That's, that is fast. I've never yeah. heard about that. It's That's just fascinating. fascinating. I mean, I remember my first Al-Anon meeting, I was blown away. I, I, I couldn't believe it. The topic was fear. And I was like, oh, that's what I feel all the time. You know, like a fish You still water. remember this meeting? Oh, so crystal clear and uh it, it just blew my mind and the the women there I didn't know how you dressed for Al-Anon this was the late 80s I put a dress on I put heels and it's a basement you know of a church at night sure and and they're already at this table and they used to smoke then in meetings this right. big blue billow it's dark except for a light over them can you imagine this right and I'm a little bit late and it's clip clop clip clop clip clop with my high heels across <laughs> the linoleum yeah and these women were so much older than me, but they had the hard knocks, you know, they're missing teeth. You know, to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, who are these people? I was like, but you know, the lucky thing is, is I was still really concerned to please people. Not, we like to please people in a healthy way, but I was in an unhealthy way. And I thought, oh, I can't turn around. I'd hurt their feelings, (laughs) you know? Right. So thankfully I felt that way because when I sat down there with these women and I mean, 
in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, this sounds terrible to say, but this is the truth in my mind. It's like they're sea hags, you know, like out of the books that you'd read. Right. And I was terrified. And then they started sharing. And I thought, it, it gets me emotional right now. I thought, I have never heard such wisdom in my life. And without knowing it, it was my first lesson in principles before personalities, mm. you know, and they blew me away. And, and that was it for me. Al-Anon was it ever after. I and you kept it. coming back and you kept and going to meetings. And I ended up not going to that meeting. Right. But kept going to meetings. I found a fabulous home group, loved it. And, um, I used to, because I was so blown away that other people were living in fear all the time. So I went to this meeting, it'd be like a step and a topic. And I was always raising my hand. Let's talk about anger. Let's talk about anger. <laughs> I couldn't imagine that everybody was living with that. You know, it was such an eye opener. Interesting. Yeah. So were you, you were not working in the field before this no, no. meeting? No, I was in the arts field. No kidding. So this is a second career for me. And, um, I've so fell in love with the 12 steps. And then um, I finally decided I was going to get into this field. I had no idea how to do it. How long a time was it before you did, made that decision between the first meeting and I, I this is a say, calling? Yeah, it was, it was probably close to three years when I realized. I think I didn't, I couldn't really put it together, but I thought, this is it. This is it. This mm. is like the most amazing thing. Mm. I couldn't really put it together um, what I could do with it. But then I realized, oh, people actually work in treatment centers and they, right. they do this for a living. And right. you could go back to school and you could do that. You know? Right. And it's so. not a coincidence that you are a family member and that you were led to the family work at all. At all. Right? No. Yeah. Absolutely not. And it's fascinating. I have actually not um, heard of that modality at Hanley where you were introducing the patient to another family. Yeah. And now remember, that was Hanley Hazelden. That was the Hazelden Center City treatment program. Right. I mean, family program. Right. That was transported to Hanley Hazelden. And it does not exist anymore, anywhere. It's anywhere. Fasc that's fascinating. Which breaks my heart, you know, because I think it was, uh, it was so dynamic and wonderful. I've heard so many stories of family members, whether they're parents, brothers, sisters, having so much... Um, Positive benefit from being around addicts that aren't their loved ones. Absolutely. Just anecdotal. Absolutely. I'm kind of connecting that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. there is so much pressure. You know, we have a family program that we've been doing since the 80s here at Cumberland Heights. And, you know, it's multifamily groups and you introduce the individual with the back with their families. And there is there can be a lot of stress about that in terms of expectations or conversations that party A and party B feel like they need to have, you know, in a 90 minute group. So that's pretty fascinating. How has that, if any way, because how long were you working in that program? So I was there for, oh, it's been so long. I can't think, I think maybe a year and a half. Cause then we moved, Jeff and I moved to Washington DC and he was working with, um, the former Senator George McGovern, mm -hmm. um, whose daughter died of alcoholism and they started a family foundation. And, um, I want to say something about this program too. I want to backtrack because it's an Please important do. point is what it did was cool down the system and it's key you need to cool down the system because people's emotions are that they have at that time 
Well, you know, you know how it works. It closes up the thinking brain, right? You can't see well. But the other thing is, is that, um, is that their, their emotions and what they're talking about is distorted. It's, they're distorted emotions. They're distorted by the disease of addiction because everybody is a counterpart to the disease, right? Everybody's experiencing the disease. They're just experiencing it differently, hmm. right? And so we have to cool down the system. So that family program did that without our effort, you know, is how, how it should be. Right. It was the people participating allowed each other to cool down. Right. How long was it? Was it a one-day thing that families experienced, or was it a three, week? Three days. Three days. Three days. And do you remember, like, um, just pragmatically, like, what was the, you know, psychoeducation, like, systems theory introduction, or was it all just pro- open? Tell me no, about no. that. No, no. We had definite educational pieces. We had... Um, you know, and we could talk a lot about education, and I, I'm, I'm here, of course, because I'm presenting tomorrow, because education doesn't really create lasting change. And um, Say more about that. That's interesting. Yeah. So when um, we're going to kind of jump ahead here, I guess, but when I was writing the book, It Takes a Family, uh-huh. we had been doing structured family recovery, something called structured family recovery. And um, when I was getting ready to write the book, which was published by Hazelden, I learned that I learned a couple of things. One, that Stanford had a behavior design lab. And two, that the founder, B.J. Fogg, was doing a boot camp. And I thought, I have to get in that boot camp. And right. they were taking 10 people, right? 10. Right. And you had to jump through hoops and you had to do all sorts of things. And then the last thing they asked you is what are you doing right now? Not something that's aspirational, but what are you doing right now that the information that you're going to get, that you will right now apply it to what you're doing? I thought, I've got this one for sure. And um, so I ended up going, everybody was from big tech. I mean, Unisys sent their lead uh, engineer from Tokyo. You know, this was all big, big, interesting. Big, you know, Microsoft, this was Facebook, this, you know, everything. And the addiction girl, <laughs> they all looked at me. I was the addiction girl. What really struck me is there was nobody from the helping professions there. Hmm. And um, so we learned a lot. And I took a second one, more advanced. Um, but you would be surprised at the things that people think will lead to lasting change that don't. One is education. And I'd like to say, educa- I mean, we all like to have education. We love, I love education. Sure. I'm all about education. But when we're talking about creating lasting change, that doesn't do it. And really, all you have to use is a little bit of critical thinking because if that were true, we would all be at our healthiest. We are overeducated about health. We're overeducated about diet. We're overeducated about um, exercise, right? And all that education we get, you know, as a country, we have a big problem. We have diabetes. We have all sorts of problems. So education may be wonderful, but there's a very specific way you have to use it, which came out of Rutgers University. Um, and it's not education first. It's interesting. It reminds me of my favorite thing about recovery, which I'm not a recovery expert or anything like that. I, you know, I'm one example. 
But but you are. <laughs> well, one of my favorite things is that recovery doesn't care what you think about it. No, thank you. Right? Thank you. Does not care what you Does think about it. Does not care. And, 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 <laughs> and, you know, meetings as an example, as one component of a recovery lifestyle is a space where people can come and be who as they are, right? And, and um, discuss and talk about things that are uh, top of mind perhaps for them that day. And that's valuable so that we can connect and we can identify and we can make people feel welcome and all of that. But it's a reminder that as people who struggle with addiction and families, probably we're so cerebral. Oh, right? sure. Absolutely. And uh, when I went back to school to become an MFT, which was totally by accident, I was so attracted to MFT systems theory because it also, too, doesn't care what you think about it. It's all about the system. It's all right. about manipulating the inputs and the outputs of somebody's life to drive change. And so there were these correlates between recovery and kind of educational psychology in a way and systems theory that were really congruent. And you're exactly right. Like, you know, that's why it's so hard to start working out because in the beginning it does not feel good. You're like, I'm, I would rather not, you know, it's only until you get down along the path a little bit further that you start to experience those returns that are valuable. And it has nothing to do about what you think. Do I belong here? Because the brain is lazy Mm. for a good reason, because we know the brain's number one job is to keep us alive. And the right. brain doesn't know if we're going to have food tomorrow. Right. Right? So anything hard, that's why learning calculus is really, 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 really feels really, really hard. Right. Going shopping seems really, really easy. So just like what you say, the brain is like, whoa, 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 this is going to take up way too much energy. And my job is to keep you alive. And so we don't, it, 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 you're right. You know, you have to get past that. So when you're talking about the Hanley Hazelden program that you were part of, it makes sense that it wasn't just psychoeducation. Right. It was the practical experience of sitting in a group with a family member and identifying your core struggle as a husband, as a brother, as a sister, as a mom, as a son, whatever it is. And that maybe broke the seal for those families as you talk about cooling down the system. Cool down the system. It had it happened so organically and yeah. it's pleasurable. And they got, and the break time was almost the most beneficial. Really? Because when it was, when they just had free time, that's when they really created these relationships. They got to be really close. Interesting. You know, really, really close, these families with, you know, different patients. And um, and so then they would bring that closeness into the next group, which of would be course. that much better. But, you know, when you talk about going, you know, recovery, like you talk about going to, you know, the early AAs, Bob and Bill, and the early AAs totally got it right. I'll say when my first boot camp, this fellow was a fortune, with a Fortune 500 company, halfway through, he came up to me and he whispered, I'm a friend of Bill's, which of course we know means I'm an AA. Right. He said they could have saved 40 years of research just by going to AA. We laughed about it. But those guys got it right, and that's why AA works. That's why it works. And and just what you said, you don't have to think. Nobody's asking you to think. You know, one of the things you hear in an AA meeting is it isn't if you want what we want, feel like we feel. It wasn't if you want what we want, think how we think. It is if you want what we want, do what we do. And that's key because behavioral expectations are one of the things that actually create lasting change. I mean, AA is the perfect like petri dish to look at behavior right. design right at its best right 
right? And it's absent of all the thought, right? Which is where all right. the black box of the mind, where your, your yeah. expectations and your hopes and, and all that can really trip you up. And it's, it's really, you know, and it sounds, um, I mean, it sounds limiting. It sounds, um, um, hard, hard boned in some ways, right? You know, do before you, before you right. think and all that kind of, but there's, there's a lot of validity to that. So it's, it's really Action interesting. before motivation. Right. Motivation is also another thing that does not create lasting change. I mean, that's right. Does not. Or everybody would be clean and sober. Everybody would be clean and sober. Right. Everybody would be at their goal weight. Everybody would be, you know what I mean? <laughs> like everything, right. you know, everyone's right. house would be spick and span. Right. It's just, we, and we all live with that. We live that reality every day, but yet our brain ticks, tricks us and we're told, you know, this will motivate you. Right. You know, right. it sort of reminds me of like that we're um, long familiar about the nature of our problems before we're willing to do anything about them. Yes. Right? yes. It's the same kind of component. Right. I'm curious about your experiences in that program and the lessons you learned with your personal recovery and then professionally and then kind of fast forwarding into structured family recovery. Oh, yeah. It structured family recovery was like a sn- slow rolling snowball, you know? Um, and of course my passion, even getting in, in to this field was families because I know we live, I grew up two and a half hours from Hazelden and didn't even, we didn't even know it existed. Really? So my father was what they called a high functioning alcoholic, which is always outside of the home, not in the home, right? The functioning in the home, no. Right. And so my mm. parents divorced, and, and it, was, it was kind of shattering for my brother and I. Um, um, and I think, oh, my gosh, if we'd known about Hazelden, you know, if we had structured family, my dad would have been fabulous in AA. I mean, he would have been, he would have loved AA. We didn't even know about AA. I mean, we didn't. You know, wow. I, and and um, so it really starts there, you know, and the idea that, you know, we talk about divorces as, as if it means nothing. That's not true. It's not true. And so all of that, but doing that Hazelden family program, that was key. That was key. I really couldn't articulate it in my head, but I felt what was going on at the time. And um, Change. The change and what happened, I didn't have the words cooling down the system, but I saw it over and over and over and how that then radiated outward. You Which know? was different than you're experiencing working directly with a patient and oh. calling the family. Oh, right. absolutely. Right. I mean, very, very different, very different. And then, of course, my own Al-Anon meeting, you know, that mattered too. But those weren't enough. I, I, I you know, I, I have to t- talk about this a little bit because it's like over time, you and this is where information and knowledge is really important, you know, because um, it, it, it is important. It's just not going to create lasting change. But that driving, burning, slow burning passion, along with always being curious, always being thinking creatively, always thinking about what works, and over time, over time, and over time. And then the funniest thing happens. I think when something's innovative is it's not that you're sitting down, you've got papers and whiteboards and you're mapping it out, right? but you're doing something like vacuuming. And the whole idea, it's like it's downloaded into your brain. 
because all of a sudden everything comes together and you go, I've got it. You know, and that's just what happened. And you can't, people will say, well, how did you think of this? I can't tell you how I thought of it. You know, um, it just arrived, but it didn't arrive out of nowhere. It arrived of, you know, decades of work. Right. You know, right. And then it comes and it came. I remember Prince said once that his songs came to him the whole song at once. Right. It was like that. Right. The whole thing at once. And then it was a matter of implementing. And there was no book then. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the book has a whole year of structured family recovery meetings in it. It's written for families. You know, professionals use it, but it's not a training manual for professionals. And um, But yes, you're right. And, and, you know, I was just reading a study the other day, and it said innovative thinking, you know, you've got critical thinking, going back to Socrates. You've got creative thinking. Plato talked about it. He... He thought it came from the gods, right? And then you've got innovative thinking, which is a different thing. And it was interesting, this study talked about the fact that, you know, you can do a lot of things to become a critical thinker and a creative thinker. Hmm. But innovative thinkers, they said, what we think now is that there are parts of the brain that typically aren't strongly connected to one another. And in people that innovate things, there is a much stronger connection. Hmm. And so they're they're their brain is working differently. So I was reading that because it also makes me think, and there's another thing, you know, I've had a few of these experiences, but this one, you know, because I thought, what happened? How did this come together like this? All at once. All at once. And so when I read that study, and I mean, it's not conclusive. Sure. You know what I mean? But it's something they think is happening. Neuroscience scientists is that certain, with certain people, those regions of the brain are more closely connected and working together, which allows that to happen. I don't know. I don't know. It's like a mystery. Well, I think about your history and your experience too, right? Like, um, and identifying a problem, right? which at the time that you created this way of being or this modality or a presentation, whatever it might be, innovators solve for problems. Right. Or at least tackle them from a perspective that otherwise has been overlooked or right. minimized or not considered. Right. And sometimes see problems that nobody else sees. Right. Exactly. Right from the beginning. Exactly. And so much of your story, you know, people talk about like, not to be a little woo-woo today, but, you know, people talk about fate or coincidence or serendipity, but you can kind of see from the outside, I met you for the first time today, but from the outside looking in, there was a reason that those connections happened, right? right. Certainly you had right. to do the footwork from a recovery right. perspective, but you did. Right. And uh, that's a beautiful kind of recovery element that exists in your life and, you know, like the tens of thousands of other friends that are outside of this room that we could speak to that, you know, they were called, you know, in some ways and were able to create something that drove change based on that passion, based on that pain. Right. Which and, I think is unique to our field. Exactly. And, and the thing is the doors open. You know, if you've ever read Dale Carnegie, um, you know, he talks, he, 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 he spent his life studying very successful people. I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, very successful people. And, um, but he said, you know, when you start doing something and you're down the right path, that's yeah. when the doors open. I think anybody in recovery has experienced that, don't you think? Yeah. Really good recovery is that once you go down that path, then it's amazing 
doors that you never knew existed start opening. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, one of those lines, you know, from a specific piece of literature. Everything is subject to revision, especially what we know about the truth. And our truth changes. And sometimes life just has a way of putting you in, at least to have the opportunity to open the door in front of those doors in a way that you just otherwise would not expect, right? Absolutely. I think oftentimes, even in this field, in behavioral health and addiction specific, at an addiction treatment center like this one that we're in today, a lot of people don't plan to show up here when they're 14. No, <laughs> Professional, no. you know, No, right? no, no, it's, no. It's, it's quite fascinating that way. I would say most people. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So if you were to describe to somebody who has never heard of structured family recovery before, give us an explanation of what it is, what you created and what your work has been focused on over the past 20 years. 30. 30 years. I shortchanged you. Yeah, but I'd take 20 and I'll shave 10 years off. No, no, 30 (laughs) years. Yeah. Um, I'm talking age-wise. Sure, sure. so you've asked a $64,000 question, you know, just to like give that answer. I'll tell you a little story. So a friend of mine, his family owned um, a big business, family owned business that brought in about a billion dollars a year. Very successful. Just a little business. Little, okay. Yeah. So he ended up being the president. His dad stepped down. He ended up being the president. And then when he retired, he decided he was a recovering person himself, Got decided it. to go back to school, get his master's degree, and start working a little bit in the field. So anyway, he got trained with SFR as an SFR counselor. And he said he said to me, I don't know, this is about a year later, and he said to me, Deborah, I have spent the months trying to come up with the elevator speech for structured family recovery, and I can't come up with one. So I just say that to lay the groundwork. It's not an easy thing. Got it. Okay. Big question. Big question. So the thing about structured family recovery, this is the way I describe it. They're structured, right? Structured. It's very structured in a good way. It's not therapy. It's positive brain. It's all positive brain. There are weekly meetings. Every meeting is the same. I mean, the topics change, right? And the topics... And it's paired Sounds with, familiar. yes, and it's paired with 12-step recovery. So let me say this first to explain. There are two things. There's one thing called virtue ethics, and there's another thing called role ethics, R-O-L-E ethics, okay? Virtue, virtue ethics, excuse me, virtue ethics um, asks the question, who am I? Role ethics asks the question, who am I in relation to you? Mm. Okay. So structured family recovery answers role ethics. Mm. But the virtue ethics, that's the 12-step meeting. Who am I? That is where everybody goes and improves themselves, brings their improved self back to the family. Mm -hmm. And structured family recovery then answers the question, who am I in relation to you? Okay, we don't discuss either of those things, but that's what's happening. So the family team comes together, and um, it's one of those things where the sum of the whole are much less than what you end up with. Right. So, like, there's an opening statement. So it just says, these are kind of the rules while we're together. Like, we don't use... You statements. We don't use I statements that are 
thinly veiled use statements, right? Right. We have red light, yellow light, green light. If somebody brings something up from outside of SFR, we don't, somebody just says, I think that's a red light issue. That's the end of it, right? So we start that every week round robin. Everyone reads the seven expectations in the opening statement. Then there's a topic every week. So let's say the topic week 38 is trustworthiness, okay? So the first thing we do is have a reading. It's going to be out of Courage to Change, the meditation book Mm -hmm. from Al-Anon, or Daily Reflections from AA. But imagine this. This family member, let's say it's your dad, okay? Okay. Let's say you're the person who's newly in recovery or still in treatment. Sometimes people are still in treatment doing this. And it's your dad. And your dad selected the reading, right? Now, let me tell you, they will read every single reading in Courage to Change, for instance, on that topic before they select it. Right. Right? Right. And then they read it, and you're listening, and your mom's there, and your sister, and maybe an aunt, maybe, you know, you know, some extended family members, and you're all listening to the reading, and then dad shares why he selected that reading. Hmm. Just think what happens to you, right? And then everybody else goes around, and they share their insights. Round robin. The SFR counselor is a small figure in all of this, so you don't... Everybody's assigned an order. It's a different order every week, hmm. and they're not introducing it, so they don't break that emotional thing that's happening. So just this first part, let me give you a story. So there's a woman. She's in treatment. It's a 90-day program, very well known. She joins. Um, the first few f- meetings are just for the family, and there's reasons for that. She joins on the fourth week, and it is her dad that picked the reading, and then her dad shared And then she broke down sobbing. You know what Oprah used to call the ugly crying. Right. She's heaving and sobbing. And this typically wouldn't happen, but the SFR counselor just had to stop things and said, what's wrong? Hmm. And she said, I've never heard my father talk like that in my entire life. Wow. So right away, you know, then what happens is you have this report, discuss, plan. So I'm, I'm just explaining the mechanics of this, right? Sure. Report, discuss, plan. You know, what went well in your recovery last week? This is all about the 12-step stuff. This is the virtue ethics going on, right? What went well in your recovery? You know, what have you completed on your checklist? They're checklists. You know, they create behavioral expectations. Um, what could be improved? What are your goals for next week? And everyone reads the questions and answers it all the way around. Now, when I did that, I thought, I wonder how that's going to go over. That is their favorite part of the whole hour. No kidding. Report, discuss, plan. If they could... They would just talk about that the whole time. Why? Why do you think that is? I don't know. Because I would have picked the other. I would have picked the, I want to hear what you're thinking about trustworthiness. Report, discuss, plan. Talking about. So now what is happening is they're talking about what they're achieving in their 12-step program. They're talking about what they've heard in their meeting or what they've heard from their sponsor, the wisdom. They're bringing it back into structured family recovery. And everyone is not only hearing what they're accomplishing, positive social norm, right, Um, and what they're doing, behavioral expectations, but they're also getting the wisdom they're learning from their meeting, and they're bringing it in. They love it. And whenever anybody checks something off on their checklist, like, I got a sponsor, right, we have a a three-second celebration. 
So let me, there's just so much science. The brain just loves a celebration, right? Watch kids, watch dogs, watch somebody who just scored on a big, huge, you know, like the Women's World Cup, you know, watch that celebration. And they pick their own celebration. So we have international families. This is a French family and their teenage daughter picked Funky Groovy, right? And everyone is like, Funky Groovy. Everybody together is celebrating you and everyone loves it. And this particular family, now they go on vacation, road trips. They use Funky Groovy for everything, you know? Man, this ice cream is so funky groovy. You know, their celebration is spreading through their life and through younger children and everything else. So this whole thing happens. And then we go into an area of three paragraphs. They all... They all work kind of in tandem with the 12 steps. So the first thing is learning something new. Same thing, round robin. One person reads it. Everyone shares. The next thing is about whatever step. So we're on step seven this month. And then there's something written. Not 12-step related. They're getting that elsewhere. Right. But it's, you know. And then finally working a program recovery um, and these aren't instructive, they're ideas and thoughts. And and everybody shares. And they, it's just mind-blowing what comes out of these people's mouths. I mean, the spirituality that just... I remember one dad, he goes, I, I can't even believe these are the children I raised. I, I've never heard anything like this. Families will say it over and over and over. I've, we've never talked like this. We've never, ever been this close. And then at the end, there's a little tiny assignment, and it's always sending them back out into the recovery community. So you're always going back out. You have to do your assignment with your sponsor in a meeting. Um, And then when you come back next week, report, discuss, plan, you're going to talk about your assignment. Mm. So again, you're bringing that wisdom. But the thing is, is we want to say, your recovery isn't with the SFR counselor. Your recovery is out in this community. We're always sending you there. If you have a question, you have an issue, you know that's where you take it, right? And you right. can bring it back to us. Um, so you're getting your answer. I learned that in treatment. I don't think when I did it, I was thinking about it. But I, because you've asked me these questions, I just realized, you know, I worked in, as a counselor and somebody would come in with a problem. I'd send him out to talk to a senior peer that was doing really well and then say, and then come back to me by the end of the day and let me know about that conversation. Right. So I think there's another seed for you, you know? Right. Um, and then at the end, we... Round Robin, do the promises from the big book. You can't believe that experience until you hear a family week in and week out, round Robin, read the promises. And at the end, we think not, and they all say it in unison, you know. Right. And um, it, it's, it's, it's so simple, I think, how did we never think of this? How? It reminds me of your statement about the pioneers of 12-step recovery, right? Bill and Bob, like they stumbled upon something sacred and unique and special and with so much value. And it's so simple, you know, of the tens of thousands of meetings that are going to happen today in this country. It's so simple. So simple. Yeah. And And wherever you are, you know, what's going to happen when you walk in that meeting. Right. 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 Yeah. That reminds me, I've, I've been to some, I've had the opportunity to go to meetings all over the world and I've been to meetings where I couldn't understand the language, but I still was a part of the atmosphere of recovery. And generally, I understood that those meetings tended to be about relationships just by way of the emotion that was being shared by the person. But uh, a couple things that I want to say about 
this modality that you developed because it matches perfectly with your experience. It's all, it's almost like, um, there are so many seeds that, that I'm seeing that you're picking out from whether that was working with the individuals or being a part of that family group or your own family's experience that really, uh, nurtured your vision for how this could help families all across the world. So I, I, I just want to say that from the outside looking in, being introduced to that, it's fascinating to see how you kind of wrapped that up in a way that's probably super beneficial. And then the statement about the the woman and her father mm-hmm. sort of like taking a moment to reflect on that because there's so many, you know, I've worked in private practice. I've worked in treatment as a clinician. I'm recovering now. But, uh, you know, like there's so many times that I interact and I'm not perfect at communication as probably you are not either, right? But no. especially with our own families. But there's people are... Uh, thirsty, starving for connection, Mm -hmm. you know, and the vehicle that you've created provides that. Yeah, it does. Have there been families not associated with addiction that have used this modality that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of, but you know, that is such an insightful question. So when, um, there have been times, quite a few times actually, when I've been speaking at conferences about this and nurses or people who suffer from diabetes have come up to me and said, this has to be done for right. diabetics and their families. I think there's so many great ways that this could be used. Um, and it, it's especially nice for diabetes, especially type 2, right. um, because you do have things like the gray sheeters. You know, you've got 12-step, you know, Overeaters Anonymous. You've got 12-step... Um, uh, programs. The thing about it is for some other things, you know, it's figuring. The thing is, though, I, I'm going to back up and say, you know, Al-Anon is so flexible. Um, it's very, well, I, and I, and I have to say, though, that it is used a lot with sex addiction. We get a lot of sex addiction families. Why do you think that? Hmm. I know where that is because, you know, Pine Grove has a freestanding sex addiction program called Gratitude, right. they refer their families. And those families are all over it. And a lot of the family members go to um, Al-Anon, and Al-Anon's very inviting. You know, they don't care. Uh, very good for gambling. We don't get as much referral for that, but we have had that, and it, it's very good. And also for cultures, like we get families from France especially, um, and they don't really have recovery in France, um, sometimes I think they catch on even faster because they don't have preconceived false ideas about it. Uh, one French family, they, uh, the dad, the dad, very Catholic, very spiritual. He had a Jesuit who was a spiritual advisor, brilliant man. And he said, I don't know, we were probably, I was working with that family, we were probably maybe maybe 15 weeks in, he said, I always thought I was a spiritual person. And they were going to Al-Anon, expat meetings, American and Brits. And uh, he said, I always thought I was a really deeply spiritual person, but Mm. this taught me I Mm. was not. Mm. He said, this has changed everything for me. Hmm. You know, isn't that interesting? And the core of that is recovery, right? The core of that's recovery. Yeah. And the fact, so active in in the Al-Anon program with his sponsor, it just reminds me of the unique culture that recovery really creates all across the world, you know, agnostic of culture, agnostic of religion or tradition or any, you know, anything like that. You know, 
people having the opportunity to discover a relationship with themselves, a relationship with higher power and, and then other people is transformational in the vehicle of 12 step meetings, you know, is that it tends to be the classic or traditional delivery mechanism. I, um, I'm a, uh, an adjunct professor on a, a graduate's, uh, program, MFT and LPC programs here in Nashville. And one of the things I teach the addiction, I'm the, I'm the addiction oh, that's great. token, that's great. you know, professor. <laughs> and these graduate programs get one class in addiction, wow. which is, yeah, yeah, fascinating in and of itself. But one of the things that we ask the students to do when they're there is to give up something for 28 days, which is all, mm. we don't need to talk about that today, but it's fascinating. But another thing is to participate in the atmosphere of recovery. So go to meetings. I love that. Right. That's and, fabulous. And read the literature. And I, you're, you're reminding me of, um, I had a student once, um, specifically I have them read the Narcotics Anonymous Flat Book, the Step Working Guide, which is robust. Yeah. And um, if you're a family member and you want to check that out, you definitely should because <clears throat> when you look at the questions there, it's a big lift, right? It's intense. It's not easy work. And I remember I assigned the reading to, for them to read the four step, which of course has another sort of recovery meaning. It, it, uh, uh, it's, a, it's an infamous step, right? And um, they read all these questions and all these sections about selfishness and, you know, a sexual inventory, but also the good. Remember, inventory right. is about the good and the bad. Right. And um, they came back to class and, you know, all these professionals, they were about to graduate. You know, there's master's level students and clinicians who have a myriad of experiences and several of them. I've never done this work. It speaks to the families that you talked about. Absolutely. We've never had these conversations, no. right? I and think that's true of most people. Yeah, it's fascinating. Or somebody sort of from a religious context saying, yeah. why haven't we, you know, something's missing here. And that's not a proclamation on anybody's practice or anything like no, that. No, but no. there is a depth to walking into a meeting and somebody having crack pipe burns on their lips and struggling that day to stop using. There's a transformational, I mean, it's, it gives me kind of goosebumps to think about that that's happening everywhere all at once, if you will. And And it's, and it's, and, and, and the thing that's, everything about it is so, it's such a paradox really, because the old timer can say to that crack addict with the burned lips, thanks for saving my life today. Right. And like we talked about just in terms of the thinking that we tend to do, especially, well, maybe not especially early on, because I think that in some ways it can be insidious and, yeah, yeah. manifest at all different phases of life and recovery. But, you know, that person in early recovery is, what are you talking about? Right. But that little tic tac size piece of hope might be the thing that brings it back to the next meeting. That's right. That's and right. just a little bit more. So when I think about families that are participating in this program, that's what they're doing is just yeah. this organic space to connect. And the, the beauty of it is the structure. You the know? structure is everything. So like I always say, it's like you take a little boat, you put it on a river, you put the people in, and the current of the river is structured family recovery. It's just going to take them. And it's just going to take them in that one direction. What We never say to people anything about the structure. That's not, we don't educate people. We don't say, oh, it's the structure and oh, you're going to have this common language. There's no explanation like that. I mean, of course, there's a book to read, but. Um, as family, uh, excuse me, as professionals yeah. would associate that's with structure. Right. This is actually just structure in terms of a guide. This is just structure. Just the doing of it is structured, but we're not saying, oh, it's structured. And oh, you're going to have this common recovery language. And oh, you're going to get yeah. this. None of that. But do you know at the end when people finish 
a year, it's a year of meetings, uh, once a week for an hour, again and again and again, you hear the same thing. I loved the structure. Mm. I love that we share this language of recovery. Mm. You know, again and again, they know what it is. They know what's working. And then it's all positive brain, right? It's all positive brain. Right, right. So do you see family, you mentioned family team when you first started talking about it. And I, I assume you chose that language specifically for a reason. So I would imagine that the family itself selects they or do. self-selects the participation? They self-select. Okay. So the book talks about, you know, looking beyond the nuclear family. You know, that's a fairly new construct, right? Right. In, in the history of humankind. And uh, that can make a big difference. But, you know, sometimes you have, there's not too many people. Maybe it's only two people hmm. and, the, and the beloved alcoholic. Sometimes we have seven or eight. You know, it, it can vary so much from family to family. I usually say this. This is kind of the rule of thumb on selecting people. Whoever you'd feel comfortable eating breakfast in your pajamas with, that person would be right for your structured family recovery team. So it's not a casual friend, but it's your friend that's like family, you know? Right. Um, the other thing is Commitment. Commitment. This is the thing, people, now, let me, I don't want to be Pollyanna here. There's some people that fall away, some people follow the disease, that happens. Sure. The book is also written for people to do it on their own in different ways they can, sometimes people get started and they get going and then they, it's like the little bird flies away. We're big on that. You're doing good, you can go. Other people just don't ever go away. Hmm. I mean, we have, like, right now, just a family that just celebrated five years every year. The SFR counselor is like, you guys can do it on your own. And they said, you know, maybe year six. They love their SFR counselor. They don't want to let go of her, you know? Sure. Maybe year six we'll start doing it on our own. Um, somebody used to work with us. He has one SFR family left. He's doing something else. He goes, you know, we're on week." 199. I mean, how long do I have to do this with them? I go, well, you can only let them go from your side if you're really ill and you can't do it anymore or you're retired. Otherwise, you cannot abandon your family. Right. You know, right. and he's kind of wondering. So we get this. I, but the book is also written. There are people who do it totally on their own with the book. Sometimes we've had people call us and go, can we just work on the recovery plan with you? We're doing great. I know one family contacted me. And they're almost to year seven. They've been using the book by themselves. And it's made up of a father who's a physician, a mother who's a nurse, um, an uncle who's a psychiatrist. The beloved alcoholic is um, an attorney. And during this time, since they started, he met a woman in recovery and married her. And now they have twins and they're almost to year seven on structured family recovery. Every wow. year they say, shall we end it now? And they all say, we're too afraid to lose what we have. Wow. So you see a whole family develop as they're doing this. But I always think of those, two, those twins. They're like 18 months now. Like right. how different their life will be. Right. You know? Literally. How Literally. different their life would be, Literally. and it and it and it just I mm, 
there's no doubt that a scaffolding like this mm-hmm. or a structure like this would be beneficial for any family. Any family. Any, any family, family, even outside of addiction. That's the yes. thing, right, that we're sort of beginning to dance around over and over again is finding ways to create intimacy, right? Finding yes. ways to learn more about each other because homeostasis does take place in all family systems or all systems of any kind, right, where it's normal to maybe dismiss with a minimum of concern or, you know, bad habits take root over a period of time that are pre-conscious processes that are really, once you set your temperature to 72, the old, you know, analogy of a thermostat, it's really hard to change your temperature, which is why treatment, um, the risk of treatment failure is so high for the individual without family intervention, you know, is that, you know, somebody leaves treatment and they have all these tools and they're part of a great program and they go back to the same 72. Well, they're probably out of luck because the other members of the system are going to push them back to that heated section. That's right. right? Absolutely. Or that common degree, which is really, really interesting. Have you... um, Oh, and can I add one thing? Please do. I completely forgot about all this to say this. I should have said it in the beginning. Say it. So structured family recovery happens via conference call. That's what I was about to ask you. Yeah. So, so do people do telehealth, like kind of tele, and we do, Zoom We don't do calls. Zoom. You know why we don't do Zoom? Because um, it's so distracting how I look, how you look. Hmm. Somebody might be thinking, but I think they look bored, but they're actually really concentrating. We don't do Zoom. We do it on conference call. It's more intimate, the voices, just the voices. And um, and this active listening, that's another thing family members go, I'm such an active listener now. So And then you can do it anywhere. So I worked with a family once. There, there was somebody in London, um, Paris, a small town in Switzerland. No kidding. And one person that went to Costa Rica and another to Brazil. And all, all using um, conference call. I so people can be anywhere. That's so interesting. And I'll tell you something. I'll tell you this. I was on one of our counselors with the, with a pandemic. Just you know, sometimes people just slide into another direction. Everyone is using Zoom. The family said we want to use Zoom. So she said, "Okay." They did Zoom. They invited me in the last week. I mean, I kind of said, you know, we can't do this anymore for a reason. So I'm there, and everybody's on Zoom, and I'm looking at the addicted, the beloved alcoholic. He's sitting outside. And he's on a picnic table, sitting at a picnic table. And he's looking off. I'm like, what's up with him? Right. He's totally disconnected. He seems bored. They've done a whole year. What's going on? Right. It's the last session. Last session. You think he'd really be engaged? And I'm I'm like, wow. And then it's his turn to talk. And he breaks down crying. Because at the end, we say, talk to your team. Tell them what this has been like. He couldn't get the words out. He was so over, uh, overwhelmed emotionally. And when he finally could talk, it was so beautiful. It was so powerful. And I th- realized this isn't why we do Zoom, because I misinterpreted completely hmm. what was going on with him. Right. So we don't want to... S- we're about listening to each other, not looking at each other in SFR. That's a... Mm, that is an interesting... Discovery, the act of listening, listening and not watching. Because I would have said, no way, need to be on Zoom. It's got to be that way Mm -hmm. because, but you know, it's just maybe a recipe for disconnection. It is. And uh, it works so well. Families know it too. 
there. And can I tell you one other story real quick? Because it's one of Please. my favorites. So mom, single mom, she's divorced. Little girl, alco- mom is a bad alcoholic. So the little girl has lived with alcoholism her whole life. She's now five. And she's on the call. Mom's on the call with the SFR team, her family, right? And um, she had just gotten a sponsor. And so the little girl can hear all this. She's sitting next to mom because everybody's in their house. See, that's the other beauty of it. Nobody has to travel to an office. Nobody mm. has to get childcare. Nobody. I right? like where this is going. Yeah. So you don't have She's to worry if you have makeup coloring. on. Yep. You don't. You can yep. be in bed with a cold. You can be anywhere. You can be in the car at your kid's soccer practice. Right. But so the little five-year-old girl is coloring right next to mom who's on the call. And she hears everyone celebrating her mom, the three-second celebration. The SFR counselor said she couldn't even speak because all of a sudden that little girl said, Mommy, Mommy, good for you. That was great recovery. Right. And it blew the SFR's counselor's mind. She said, I I couldn't talk because I was welling up in tears. I was ready to break down crying. She said, here this little girl has lived her whole life with addiction, and now she gets to sit and listen to recovery. Not just her mother, but her grandparents, her aunt, these close family members all participating together. And then she hears them celebrate, so she celebrates her mother. I mean, just think this little five-year-old, you know? Which is different than therapy yeah, and also different than a parent carrying their child to a 12-step meeting, which can both be valuable, right? right? But this family recovery element that otherwise might not exist. I mean, that's, this is a, it really is a good vehicle to create change. So talk to me about, I have a, I have a couple more questions or a couple more potential things to discover with you. Talk to me about how in your experience you see the differences between a traditional family program and a treatment setting and structured family recovery and perhaps how these organizations choose to use structured family recovery. You know, it's interesting that you should ask that question because I just did a graduate thesis on, you know, family programs are actually called multifamily group programs. Yeah, I alluded you know, to it earlier. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, there's not a lot of research when we're looking in the addiction field um, on that. You, I, you can go into the VA for like traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, things like that. Um, So I've done a lot of thinking about this, but my short answer is, first of all, family programs are, they vary in a lot of ways. So there's not, you know, we're not, we're using one word for a lot of different things. But let's say just the best of the best family program, okay? I would say I think it's valuable. I think it's a great first step, the best of the best. Um, But it's a little bit like it's a little bit like going to a great motivational speaker. And um, you're just like, wow, you know, I mean, there's some residual value. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But after a couple of weeks, a lot of that just goes away. A lot of it's forgotten. If people just understand, that's why I think the Hazelden thing was so brilliant because that was different. That was emotional connection and that sticks with you, right? And it depends what you're doing. And some family programs heat up the family, you know? Perfect. So, you know, um, and, and, and there was a study and I'm sorry, I can't tell you who did the study off the top of my head. But they looked at this um, 
they looked at this family program. They went through several months, I forget how many, maybe nine months of family programs and, and all the participants. So they had kind of a nice sample. And um, it was so apparent to me when I was reading it, these researchers don't understand addiction, not really, not deep, deep down. Because um, all these, what they were looking for is readiness. Readiness is another word for motivation. So we get tricked by that word because it's not really important as it turns out. But, um, and they were so ready mm. to do these things, right? And they had a follow-up that was going to happen like 55 days later or something. And um, 75% of the participants did not respond. And they're like, well, you know, that's a, you know, I mean, really, they didn't know why that happened. Well, I know why that happened, because they were back in crisis, you know, and they're not responding to this study because what they thought is that what happened over three days was going to carry people into their future. Right. And it isn't. And that's where structured family recovery carries people into their future. Family programs are great, you know, to go to, um, most of them. And, um, and I also say to people, if you're ever in a family program and they're asking you to do something you don't feel is right, you don't have to do it. That's exactly right. You don't have to do it. You can say no. I'm not comfortable with this, you know. Um, but you have to have something that carries you into the future. And and we have families that will never miss a week. They'll do a whole year without ever missing a week. We had one guy, he worked internationally a lot, and he accidentally booked a flight, international flight, departing on the night of their SFR meeting, and he changed it. And, you know, departing flights aren't easy to change, right? Sure. He changed it. He said, oh, no, 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 I won't miss this. You sure. know, so it tells you, I mean, I'm speaking more about the fact that this is a vehicle that allows families to belong to each other again, you know? Right. That they can belong, they love belonging to each other. Versus an introduction into what addiction is or roles or hierarchy and power followed by, which is valuable, right? It's we're not very dig- valuable, we're, you know, very valuable. Nick and Deborah are not minimizing the value not of that kind of all. family. Inter- I ended work. up going to a family program for a friend who was in treatment and they did the whole, you know, the whole family, um, why am I not thinking the word, you know, the whole family model, the, uh, genogram? Uh, no, the, like the Sharon Wegscheider cruise where they acted out, you know, you've got the oh, a sculpt. Yeah. Yeah. Fam- and, and, and that just, that was like a really important thing for me. Sure. It was incredibly important. All of a sudden I thought, I remember thinking, have they seen my family? <laughs> They've been inside my home, you know? But there's a difference in sort of like an intervention and... That's it. I, I hesitate to say lifestyle, but but way of being. A way of being is a really good way to put it, actually. A way of being. It's a different way of being. And it. no one's teaching it to you. You're doing it right from the beginning, which is actually... The way to do it can create lasting change. It creates potentially. lasting change. Yeah, yeah. For those that are plugged into it and yeah. participating, and stick with it. Yeah, you know. So, how do you see programs implementing SFR today? You ask such good questions. I just, <laughs> I just want you to know. So, this is a big issue because treatment programs are designed in a certain way for a certain job that they do. They try to do some other things. And some do it well, some extra little things. They might have transitional housing, really good IOP, some really valuable things. But For the addict. For the addict, exactly. Thank you. So the thing about it is, and this is something that weighs on me because I know how well 
structured family recovery works for people is that doesn't fit well with treatment centers, actually. So this is kind of a tease because I'm not talking <laughs> about it yet. So then something else, that's that's really weighed on me. I, 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 I'm like, how do we get this to families? How do we get this to families? Um, I mean, there's a family that did this, and they worked with somebody I trained, and they're wealthy, and they're in their home state. They're looking at putting in all the drug courts. They're trying to get it to other mm. families. You know, even families are trying to get it to them. But so I'm working on something now that someday we'll do this again called Family Recovery Lab, which I think is going to be the vehicle, and it's something that treatment centers can use, and they don't have to integrate it. So is it that, because you mentioned the fact that there are SFR counselors uh, counselors mm-hmm. who I assume have been through a training program so with you or your institute. they go through training, which is really important because when you read the book, which is written for families, professionals think, well, this is easy. No, it isn't easy. It's really not easy because it's so counterintuitive and so different than everything counselors have been trained to do. So I actually got a registered trademark for structured family recovery with the U.S. government to protect the work, which is ethical because... When I protect the work, I protect families, and I protect those people that invested in getting trained. So nobody can read this book and be an SFR counselor because they think they are. And it's important for me to say that because that happens a lot, and families get tricked, and then people do it wrong, and then it it won't work for families. And so most folks can probably find those who are identifying or credentialed appropriately through your website. They can find, if they, our website, which is lovefirst.net, if they call, we can put them in touch with somebody who has been trained. And we do, with our trainings, um, we include case supervision so that they actually do it. People that follow through with case supervision then are what we call certified. You have people who are trained in it. And then we have people who are certified. The certified people actually have like a gold seal they can put on their website um, because they have completed certification. That's key. We do really sophisticated simulations. It's really hard. People fall on their face, you know, which is you learn by making mistakes. 100%. All the, all, all the way. I never yep. forget anything when I've made a mistake. I learn it that way. It's indelible. Um, mistakes are much more valuable than victory. Exactly. 100%. Uh, absolutely. Yep. It's so nice that you know that. Yeah. You well, know, I mean, really, not a lot of people do. Mistakes are valuable. Yep. And um, and then when you're out in the field doing it, you need case supervision. 100%. You know. And you got to have that feedback. And that's one of the unique things about some training programs, like whether it's a two-way mirror. You know, right. if, you're, if you're a student looking for a graduate program, mm-hmm. make sure they have the live supervision because it's just different. You know, Absolutely. You get, you get a different... Um, Level of preparedness. Yeah, and that's why we include it with the training. It's not an extra cost to make it really simple for people. They don't have to struggle with, do I want to pay for this or not? You know. So how long, how long have you been certifying these folks, so the and first, how many are in this country? Now I cannot answer that question because I've not added them up. I've been doing this. The book came out. The this is the second di- edition now, and if people get this book or listening to this, they should be getting the second edition. Hazelden Publishing, you know it's the second edition edition because it has a red heart on the cover. The first edition came out in 2014. I learned things since then, so we did a new edition. Sure. Um, but um, so 2014 the book came out. 2015 was the first SFR training, which we did live 
Um, and now, because of the pandemic, we do it virtually on Zoom, and it's fabulous. I'll never go back. And then all the simulations are done on conference call because I can keep people much longer that way. It costs them less money to do it. And um, it's a better training all the way around. So that's how we do it. So people don't, and, and I set it up where it's like evenings and weekends, except for one Monday. So people, most people don't have to take time off work or um, have problems and they can do it from home or their office or whatever. So this is really the beginning of y'all's journey with Love First and Structured Family Recovery. Yeah. So the books now, Love First, third edition, Structure, uh, It Takes a Family, second edition are written as companion books. So Love First is intervention, but it also talks about Structured Family Recovery and moves them right into it. So we really do have a continuum going on, and it's before, during, and after treatment. Right. And we start, when we do interventions, we have them get both books because, you know, you're never going to get a higher motivation wave than at the time of intervention and right before you get somebody into treatment. So we want them to make a commitment then, which they do, most people, not everybody, you know, you never get 100% of anything. Um, they make that commitment. We start the family first because by the time their beloved alcoholic joins, they need to be comfortable with the process. They need to have gone to at least one Al-Anon meeting, be able to share positive uh, experiences with Al-Anon. And only then can we then bring them in. If they're still in treatment, also the clinical team would be involved knowing that, you know, we want to invite them in and arranging for a time that they could actually do that. Yeah. And for those that don't know, Deborah's husband, Jeff, mm -hmm. which is sort of the, we haven't touched on that. We're going to, we're going to do that again, which is the intervention side but, of your lives. That's right. right? And, exactly. And that, that you guys have been doing for a long, long time. Long so, time. so it really does fit together in y'all's partnership and professional kind of trajectory. So if, if we're an organization, you know, like Cumberland Heights as an example, so how can an organization sort of support um, structured family recovery? Like how do we implement it? Just I'm well, sure there would be professionals interested in that. So um, there are a couple ways you can, a couple things that you can do. Um, I can, I can, if you, I, I can give you an example of another treatment center, what they did. Please. If it's all right. Can oh, I say yeah. their name? That's oh, all yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. Pine Grove, which has been around for a long time. Sure. They're in Mississippi. And um, they brought me in, um, I think, three different times to do trainings um, with all their different departments. They, uh, hmm. you know, we we design our own websites all and everything. All different departments. All different departments, admissions, everybody. Um, so I did, like, in-services, but then broke it down and uh, talking about people, what's their job, what can you do in admissions, et cetera, et cetera. Good for Pine Grove because it's really a cultural investment. It is. And everybody knowing and being familiar with it, structure. Exactly. Does that make sense? It, to, it, uh, to best support individuals. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so then, um, then they built a whole um, page on their website. We gave them um, cool. some of the things that they could put on there. Right. And then every family gets a letter, and in that letter, they're told to get a copy of It Takes a Family. And um, the one thing that um, I think the people that were there then that did the family program are gone now, so that family program piece, I don't think that they know what to do with it. I see. You know, so there's a little hole there, and that's what happens, you know, when people leave. 
But um, what we do is we get a lot of referrals from them. And I, I think the two departments that send us the most referrals are um, Gratitude, which is the Sex Addiction Treatment Center, and uh, PEP, which is their professionals program. So you have prof- executives, docs, lawyers, things like that. Um, but every family gets a letter. So the family that I talked about that had the psychiatrist uncle and everything, and they're right. high achievers. Getting, high yep. achievers are getting onto year seven. That's where they found out about the book, hmm. and um, they said we were just looking for a light in the darkness. And 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 the husband, who is a physician, is on, uh, you know different boards that reviewed programs and things like that. He said, as we were reading it, this was the only book that had a program and it made sense to us. So it's because their son went to PEP that they found out about the book. Now, the other thing is that treatment centers can do is bring in somebody who's um, trained in SFR to talk about it, which they should call me. <laughs> I could probably do a good job talking about it, but I know somebody else that's tra- that was trained by us, I think can do a good job talking about it. And, you know, people don't have to be there in person anymore. You can even have a family program. They're there on zoom. Um, and you can bring somebody in that, you know, and they should, should they should get a hold of me because it's not just sure. anybody that's going to be able to talk well about it. You know of what course. I mean? That's a good speaker. But, um, let people know because the families, I've been places where I've talked at family programs where the families start crying, you know, because it's like they haven't had anything that, that made sense that gave them so much hope. They're looking for that. They really are looking for that. And they're in family programs and they're behaving as they want to behave really well in family programs. <laughs> you know, they do. Yeah, you know, they're showing up. There's showing professionals up. here. Yeah. I mean, they're similar looking to your at experience. Me. They're I'm going to put my dress me. on. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. 100%. You know, 100%. But the thing is, they're looking for hope. Yeah. And, and But it has to be meaningful. Yep. Yep. And those inter- the multifamily groups, which is sort of what we talk about through a family program lens where there's a combination of psychotherapy, maybe psychodramas, which is a bit more experiential, um, and written homework where they're coming back each day. You're right. It's, it's pretty intense and it can be, um, not to eliminate, cause I think there's, like you said, there's great family programs that are doing great work, but it is, it's, um, compact and robust and can be a spark. And the, the systems approach would suggest that you need that continued support and structure, no pun intended. Right. Right. But you really do. You do. You, you really do. need that structure. And, and you have to remember when families come to a family program, their prefrontal cortex isn't, you know, they're not really relaxed. Their 100%. prefrontal cortex is really restricted. They have a lot of tunnel vision, a lot of what you tell them, a lot of what they go through. They're not really picking up because they're still in crisis. They're still in crisis. Yep. And now they're really nervous because they're also with professionals and the professionals are watching them. They feel right, which they are, you know, and their loved ones there. And there's all there's a lot. There's a lot that goes on. Right. Sort of reminds me, I had some colleagues when I was in graduate school at Texas Tech that did neuroimaging research on family members. Oh, interesting. Of those who experienced addiction. And what they found was, which was congruent with terminal illness literature, just in terms of you're affected when, you're, when your loved one gets sick. Why would we not transplant that to addiction? But right. instead of a, you know, classic neuroimaging studies, usually a task-oriented um, imaging process or a picture, 
image-oriented, where you're showing you cues associated with negative, positive, or appetitive um, imagery. And the appetitive imagery, or the experimental design of the study, was inserting pictures of that family member's loved one. Interesting. And taking pictures of the brain, wow. specifically in the prefrontal cortex. And what they found was the same areas, doesn't really matter where it was, right, but the same areas in the prefrontal cortex was lighting up as does the individual in recovery. And so, in fact, I was on wow. the first paper and the, I'll never, I've never gotten a worse review for a peer reviewed study. And it was clear that one of the reviewers was having sort of a, a reaction oh, yes, to our suggestion yes. that, you know, these individuals were addicted, but, but it, that's not what we were suggesting. It's just, Hey, you, there's a common effect, right? right? So we were, t- we were calling it co-addiction. We had to change that. Because <laughs> the reviewers were not happy they with that. They didn't like that. But that is fascinating. One of the things I want to sort of just conclude with that I think is just a beautiful part of your experience that has informed uh, structured family recovery is this, the group, and I hope it comes back to Gross Point. To, oh, yes, the we're, we are. I'm already AA talking to meeting. people that we're bringing it back now that things have really settled down a little bit with COVID. And now I'm feeling inspired here yeah. in our community, like, to create those spaces because I think that there are those, you know, um, you know, my partner's in Al-Anon and so she has a wealth of experience, right. Attending those groups and, you know, the process of discovery with our partners, with our family members, it it is so distinct. Mm -hmm. It's so separated, almost like a church denomination. Yes. Yes. You're like, Oh yeah, we, we, we're talking about the same things, you know, but hey, when you're looking at some of that literature and the step work, it, it's different. It is. And it's asking and challenging of, of your recovery in different ways. And so if there's anybody that's interested and we happen to be in Gross Point, Michigan, we should probably attend that group to check it out. But otherwise, I think community should be building in that direction. You are more than welcome. I mean, we're going to get it up and running. And um, and yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and it, I, you know, one person from that group happens to be my sponsee. Um, when she joined that group, her husband was in treatment. I think his second treatment, and they had four little kids. And um, and she said, you know, that's saved my life. A regular Al-Anon meeting, she said, I, would have been great, but because I could listen to these recovering addicts talk. She goes, that's what I realized that. And, and her, her husband has phenomenal recovery today, you know, mm. phenomenal. But she said, that's what I could hang on to. You know, I could understand it. And um, I think that's really important. I think you're right. Well, we're glad you're here. I am so glad to be here. And I'm so glad we did this together. I've Me had too. a great time with you. This Me has been too. a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. And you're the first podcast that we've done. Well, we're we're resuscitating, if you will, an older podcast, but this is first in our River Road studio. And so we're excited that you agreed to be a part of that. And I'll just say, Jeff is going to come, right? He we're is gonna going hold to come. him to that. Absolutely. He'll listen to this, maybe, maybe not. It's fine. But we want him to come. We want him to talk about sort of his own experiences and be a part of that. And maybe we can do a collaborative um, connection with y'all in the next few years, which would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun. That'd be great. Jeff's coming for sure. He's coming. And just everybody who's listening cannot see your studio, but it is so beautiful. I walked in, it took my breath away. You guys have done a great job here at Cumberland. This is a, you'll get a lot of beautiful, fantastic amazing work out of this studio. Yeah. You know, thank you. It's just a wonderful space and you ask really good questions. Well, thanks. I it, thank you. I'll try to take that compliment as best I can, but I just it's uh that's why we wanted this to be conversational. 
right? Instead of like a traditional interview. And really it's shout out to Ryan and Starla who are here in the studio. They're the ones that put it all together to make sure that we had it. And Stacy. Stacy. Stacy Bridges, making sure that we were where we needed to be. Yes. And Steve Lee. Those Stacey are the ones. Stacy is fabulous. She's she great. Does a great job. Yeah. She's great. No, this was great. I was a little, I mean, I'll admit, I was a little bit like, oh, we're having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what is that going to yeah. be like? You know right. what I mean? Right. And it's been an absolute pleasure. I've had so much fun. I hate to end it. Thank you. Thanks, Deborah.